Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in Christ we have the forgiveness of sins. And Father, we praise you that in your word you bring to us this comfort of the gospel and you guide us to walk in faith. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, many of you probably know a thing or two about the book of Ephesians and how in the first half, the first three chapters, Paul largely focuses on what we call the indicatives, the promises of the gospel. And then at the beginning of verse 4, he again largely turns to what we call the imperatives. The way that God calls you to live your life in light of the gospel. And so Paul here reasserts his status as an apostle, as a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is bound to write of the words to write of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is bound just as he is in prison, waiting trial in Rome. Bound to Christ and to this calling, just as he is shackled to his guard as he is under house arrest, awaiting trial. And yet, although Peter, Paul, is a prisoner in this world, yet he still urges his people. And this is not a word that is used by prisoners. This is a word that is used by a superior officer in an army giving commands to an inferior officer. Because Paul, although a prisoner in this world, he is God's messenger. He is an apostle. He speaks with God's own authority, because God has put his words into Paul's mouth and from Paul's mouth through his pen to you, God's people, as we have in the scriptures. And so you are being commanded to action as if by a general in God's army. Now there are those who claim to have faith in Christ. And yet do not live in new life. Back in my hometown of Corvallis, Oregon, I always get a haircut at the same place. Been going there for years now. And my barber, a wonderful lady, she goes by the name of Mac. McTaggart is her name. 
She once asked me about faith in Christ. And she does not believe the gospel, and she asked me, am I going to hell? And I considered carefully my words as she had very sharp scissors right next to my ears. But she, uh, no, she, she is a very kind-hearted woman, and we had a good chat. We had a very good chat about the gospel, and one of the things I learned about her is that her extended family, many of her extended family members, claim to have faith in Christ, and yet go on abusing their family members, their spouses, their children. What kind of faith is that? Is that any faith at all? She repeatedly referred to them as just having, quote, fire insurance, unquote. Well, this is no faith at all. James says that faith without works is dead. You are not to be one of those people who claims to have faith but has no works. Now, on the other hand, of course, although we confess that faith alone justifies, for there is nothing good in you. On the other hand, the world says what? It's enough to be a good person. If there is a God, and the world doesn't think there is, but if there is, surely he's happy with good works. But that's the problem. You are dead in your sins. Paul writes about that at the beginning of chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins before you were made alive with Christ. If God has not made you alive by faith in Christ, then you have no good works. It is the salvation that you have in Christ that makes you spiritually alive. It is God's gift that he gives to you by faith that he gives to you that makes you spiritually alive. And so faith cannot only be an inward reality kept in your heart and not coming out into the world through action, but faith must be lived out in action. And that's where Paul turns starting in this second half of his letter. And so as Paul starts to speak of the outward realities, the outward lived realities of faith, where does he start? He starts with Christian unity. And so Paul here calls you first to walk worthily of your calling in verse 1. And that that works itself out in Christian unity. So we'll talk second of walking in humility and gentleness. Third, with patience and bearing with one another. And fourth, maintaining the Spirit's bond of peace. So in verse 1, Peter writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You must first consider this calling that God gives you. There is no spiritual life to walk worthily without this calling. For you have been called to unspeakable riches in Christ. Here are just a few examples from chapters 1 through 3 of what you have been called to. You have been called to union with Christ most of all. You have been united to Christ so that all that he has done for you in his death, 
his resurrection, his suffering and his glory is also credited to your account. You have been adopted by God the Father to be his children, to be his heirs, so that you will have an inheritance in the life to come. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as earnest money towards that inheritance. You have new life. You have been resurrected with Christ from the dead. You have the gift of Christ's reign over all things for the benefit of the church. You have union with God's covenant people, his other children, as his household, his family. You have the presence of the triune God dwelling in you so that you are his living temple. You have hope for eternal life with God in the life to come. And that's just a selection of the things that Paul speaks of in chapters 1 through 3. And so consider the beauty of these gifts. Gifts that you didn't earn. Gifts that you could never earn. In fact, gifts that you have positively unearned, disowned, disinherited by your unworthiness. And yet God in Christ makes you worthy. So as you think of these things, consider the worthiness and the perfection of God who calls you to these things. A God who sees you in your filth, in your sins, and yet delights to make you clean. Who but a glorious, wonderful, worthy God could make sinners like you and me clean and holy. Holy with his own holiness, in his own perfection. But now the question, how do you walk worthy of the calling from this holy God? For you can't do it in your own strength. You you were dead. Dead people don't do things at all let alone things that are any good. Well, you do it by Christ, who bore your sins on the cross, who bore your filth and your shame on the cross and put your sins to death. So that when you embrace Christ by faith, your sins are decisively dealt with. You are made right in the sight of God. And he has struck the death blow against sin in your hearts so that now you walk in spiritual life. He raises you up to new life and empowers you to walk in it. As it says in Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. God has raised you up, but not just to your own life, but to the life of Christ. And Christ lives in the power of the resurrection. Christ lives in the heavenly reality of the new creation 
Christ took upon himself a body that was subject to death and now lives in a body that is no longer subject to death. And now he is in heaven where there is no corruption, where there can be no corruption. And so you are starting now to live in this life of the new creation, this life that Christ has. You are living now the life that you will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. And when Christ returns, he will perfect you so that you can no longer sin. And now God calls you to start walking like it. This new life is God working his power in you. It is only his power that will enable you to walk worthy of this calling. So now we turn to the characteristics of this walk. As Paul starts in verse 2, in, through most of the fourth chapter, he speaks of Christian unity, speaking of walking with all humility and gentleness. Walking according to your calling means walking in humility and gentleness toward one another. And so Paul says to be humble. Now, in our society, humility is widely considered to be a virtue. Not so in Greco-Roman times. To get Paul's meaning here, maybe a translation of humiliation or even debasement. Walk with debasement and gentleness. Because this word that Paul uses, it was not a heart attitude that was appropriate for upstanding members of society. It was not for citizens. It was for slaves. Slaves were supposed to be humble, according to Paul's society. Slaves, not really members of the human race. Humility was beneath any honorable person. And in fact, the Greco-Roman society taught that it was a crime against nature for a free person to adopt an attitude of humility. But you, you who are called by God, are required by him to live differently from the world. For we may live in a society that speaks about humility or honors it, Yet the world today does deal in status, doesn't it? You are not to live this way. You are not to live elevating yourselves over against one another. So give up your need to be on top, to win every argument, to serve your own interests. As it says in Philippians 2, in humility count others more significant than yourself. For you are a servant of Christ. And if he was humble, how can his servants be anything but humble? And so you are called also to be gentle, to care for those around you, to be kind even in a disagreement. And even when you have a disagreement, to think about just biting your tongue. You don't need to get your way all the time. 
And yet, nevertheless, it's important to remember that gentleness is not weakness. Aristotle called this hard attitude the mean between being too angry and never being angry at all. As John Stott put it, it's the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. So counterexamples of these attitudes abound in society today. People striving for attention on social media, men seeking to prove their status as alphas, people silencing the opinions of those who disagree with them. Counterexamples abound in scripture as well. In Numbers 16, Korah and 250 other elders of Israel opposed Moses and tried to elevate themselves, calling upon themselves to be fellow priests. We have King Saul, who opposed King David, tried to kill him on many occasions because he loved his status as king. The Pharisees opposed Jesus in part because they loved their lofty status within Israelite society. And yet in all of these stories, we see how pride and harshness were met with God's judgment. But how different Jesus is. You know, you might recognize these two words, humility and gentleness, if they'd been translated a little differently, because how does Jesus describe himself? Gentle and lowly. Same two words in ancient Greek. Jesus embodies these these qualities of humility and gentleness. And you see how these are not qualities that are really fully embraced from the heart by our society. Why? Because it's the foolishness of the cross that saves Jesus was the one who put others first in everything. In humility, he obeyed the Father and served his people by coming to earth and going to the cross. Jesus lives out this gentleness toward you even as he convicts you of sin and yet is gentle towards you in leading you to the knowledge of God and to honoring him and to being at peace with him. It was Jesus' humility and gentleness that led to salvation for the whole world. It was his humility and gentleness that led him to the cross and that leads to the renewal of all things. And so never forget how Jesus has been gentle and humble toward you and how he guides you to walk worthy of your calling by by putting his own humility and gentleness within you and strengthening you to walk in them. So we turn now in verse 2 to the fact that walking according to your calling also means walking with patience, bearing with one another in love, practical outworkings of the humility and gentleness that God puts in your heart. And these are two words that mean pretty much the same thing. Paul sort of, sort of puts them together to amplify one another. 
if you want the fancy word, it's hendiadis. I think I pronounced that correct. Well, patience. Patience is literally translated long-suffering. Being ready to bear with someone for a long time. Someone who is difficult or even foolish. Not simply someone who gets on your nerves, but might even be offensive. I always appreciated uh, Louis Burkhoff's definition of God's own long-suffering, that God bears with the disobedient and the evil despite their long-continued disobedience. God has been patient with you. And so he calls you also to be patient with one another. Now, this is not a reason to excuse abusive behavior, to bury genuine problems, to put up with insistent and intentionally harmful behavior toward you. For it says in Leviticus 19 that you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. And of course, it's not appropriate to allow our brothers and sisters to persist in sin. But nevertheless, sometimes your brothers and sisters will get on your nerves Sometimes they will unintentionally do something hurtful. We're children of God. You know how siblings sometimes bug each other. But also, there are times when brothers and sisters are intentionally seeking to hurt. And there we must be patient, working towards their genuine repentance, just as God has been patient throughout all of history, working toward your repentance and the repentance of all of his children. Nevertheless, patience cannot be an excuse for someone never to repent of their sins. However, we do so again with patience. As it says in Proverbs 29, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. This is not easy to do, is it? And that's why there is an appeal to love. For love is what enables patience with one another. For it says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. It is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things and endures all things. But biblically speaking, love is not merely a human affection or emotion. For love originates from God. God who is all love, who is the fount of all love. And his love led him to send his son for you, to redeem sinners and to call them to repentance and to give you spiritual life so that you may repent of your sins. And so as Christ loved you, you all ought to love one another. And patience with one another is an important element of that love. What tremendous patience God shows with his people. Despite Israel's repeated history of apostasy and sin, he never gave up on his promise to bring the Savior, the promised offspring, through the people of Israel. Look at Jesus and his disciples. They continually misunderstand him. They work all the angles to elevate their own position. And they try to keep him from going to the cross. And yet he remains 
their faithful teacher, Savior, and Lord. And so it is for you too. In Psalm 104, 103, we read, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God does not treat you as your sins deserve. And indeed, he is patient with you as he guides you toward holiness. So it ought to be with you. You must show patience with one another. You must bear with one another in love. And where you do correct one another for sins, you must do so with patience and gentleness, just as God has done to you. For all of this comes out in verse 3 as we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the unity that belongs to the Spirit himself. Now, unity is an attribute of God. There are no divisions. There are no parts within the Trinity. As you can see in the Trinity's work of creation and redemption, all working together for a common purpose. You also see that God's attributes, such as his love that we just spoke of, are not separate pieces of him, but are integral to who he is. So that God is love. Unity is an attribute of God. There is only one God and he cannot be divided into pieces. And so the unity that you have as brothers and sisters in the church is not something that you create. No, you are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Not to create it, but to maintain it, to live it. To live it as God's gift for you in his church. It is his unity. And he calls you to live in it. For you are united by the Holy Spirit. Who is not divided into pieces so that you have a chunk of the Holy Spirit. And you have a chunk of the Holy Spirit. No. You all are united by one Holy Spirit. And you all participate fully in him. And so the unity of the Spirit works out in peace with one another. For a healthy body does not seek to harm its members. In fact, when somebody does try to harm themselves, we rightly consider it unhealthy. I'm prone to dermatitis on my hands. But I don't cut them off when they start to break out. I care for them. I put dermatological moisturizing lotion on my hands every night. And when they do break out, I put on hydrocortisone. I care for them. Even when they're annoying me, I care for them. And so it is in the church. For peace is not only an absence of conflict. No, peace in the church refers to wholeness in every facet, to live out your care for one another in every way, and to actively seek one another's health, to actively be seeking wholeness and love and joy in the community of faith. And it's interesting that this bond of peace 
It shares the same Greek root as Paul being a prisoner for the Lord. You are tied together by the Holy Spirit just as Paul is chained to his guard in his house. You're stuck with each other. And so unity is not a matter of shared hobbies, shared interests, shared social projects. Unity unity is the Spirit himself binding you together. And so unity in the church doesn't come or go as you like the person next to you more or less, or as you agree with them more or less. For you have something that transcends any human interest, any human care or concern, any human affection which comes and goes. No, you have the Holy Spirit as your bond of peace. And he cannot come or go. But he does call you to walk in it. For Christ has purchased true peace for you. Jesus has reconciled you to God. For he is your peace by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and reconciling you to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's from chapter 2 of Ephesians. And so in Christ's church in the ancient world, neither Jew nor Gentile meant anything because of what Christ did. And Jews and Gentiles hated each other in the ancient world. The rabbis taught Jews that it was a sin to help a Gentile woman bring a child into the world because you were bringing because you were bringing a Gentile into the world. What kind of hatred is that? So much for the respect of the image of God. And yet, in Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile means anything. People who had that kind of hatred for one another are united into one in the church. People with all kinds of different thoughts or opinions in this world are likewise united in the church today. For the peace that Christ has purchased for you is the transcendent bond of peace that the Holy Spirit bestows on you and ties you together. And so you are called to walk worthy of this calling, a calling that is first of all expressed in Christian unity. As Paul also writes in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That should be the unity that you walk in with your brothers and sisters. A unity that would go even to the cross if God calls you. For the testimony of Jesus, 
and for the love that you have of your brothers and sisters. And it's only by faith in Christ that God will give you the strength to do so. It's only faith in Christ by which God gives you the strength to walk worthy of his calling. So as you walk with one another in humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as you walk this way, you are walking in the light of the resurrection. You are walking community life in the kingdom of heaven. This is the life that God has for you. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this gift of life. And we pray that your Holy Spirit may strengthen us to live according to this life. We pray that our Lord Jesus would be our example and would be the object of our faith. We pray that you would give us strong faith in him, in his salvation that he gave us out of love for us. And Father, we pray that you would indeed be glorified as we walk in the unity of the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray.